Hello and welcome to the first episode of your new book show here on RTE Radio 1. My name is Rick O'Shea and every week we'll be bringing you Irish and international authors talking about their writing. We're going to talk to you about what you're reading and finding out the latest book news and hopefully adding to your to-be-read pile. Our first guest is both one of the most and least recognisable faces in Irish media. It's ten years since he first disguised himself with a plastic bag. Now Limerick's Blind Boy Boat Club has evolved beyond anarchic musician and into a mental health advocate, a podcaster and a fiction writer as well. His latest short story collection, Boulevard Wren and Other Stories, is a visceral, sometimes surreal and quite unique collection of stories set from famine times all the way to post-apocalypse Limerick. Blind Boy Boat Club, thanks a million. Welcome to the book show. Rick O'Shea, what's the crack? Thanks, man. Um, my first question to you, I suppose, is given that everything else that you do, why write fiction in the first place? Why why start doing this? Like, I've been writing for years and years. Like, even if you look back at the, the Rubber Bandits music, a lot of those songs can be considered short stories. My influences, my strongest influences come from music. People like Tom Waits and Randy Newman. Like, Randy Newman has said that songwriting should be viewed in the way that short stories are viewed the other thing too what what I love about writing fiction is aside from writing songs I, I've worked in TV quite a bit writing scripts and the thing with television is I've got my imagination and I'll write a pitch on a script for TV and it's my unadulterated imagination and then what happens is you hand it to a producer and a producer says we have this much budget I'm afraid we can't have the bit that's on Mars yeah do you know what I mean? So when I'm writing a short story, it's like I'm it's like writing a film with a limitless budget. It can be set in any time. There can be huge explosions, there can be whatever you want. Mm. But the theatre is in the mind of the reader as such, you know? There's a broad palette in these stories here. So everything from Famine Ireland to there's dystopian fiction in here. There's in, in terms of uh, fiction writers then who are your influences? Um I lo- look, I love Flann O'Brien. Flann O'Brien was one of the people that turned me on to creativity in general. There's a short story writer, June Caldwell. She's an Irish short story writer. I like her stuff. She's it's, magnificent. Yeah, yeah, very challenging and weird and, and a lot of courage in it. Uh, I love Kevin Barry, of course. Kevin gives me a lot of confidence to write in Limerick vernacular. I mean, in my heart, my big, biggest influence is really, it, it does come from music. Tom Waits, Bob Dylan, Randy Newman, people like that. That's what... That's where my heart goes to when I'm writing, you know. In terms of the reaction then you get from people when, when you write fiction, there's a great quote from Danny Boyle, one of the great directors uh, of our time, who said, the experience is as close to reading a traditional story as being burnt by a blowtorch. Do you, do you set out to, to get that kind of reaction from people who read your stories? Not particularly, no. I, I, when, when I write, I, I really don't think of an audience at all. What I think of is what feels good to me in my heart at that time. When you get bogged down with these ideas of like the literary canon or what a short story should be, they can be very intimidating and they can have a lot of constraints around them, you know. And you can see it in a lot of short story writing where it's like you can see that that the writer's insecurity came out because they were too scared of breaking these rules. Whereas for me, I'm just like, I don't care if it feels good in my heart. And would I read this if I wasn't me? And if I can say that, if I wasn't me and I'd like to read it, then I'm happy with it, you know. Um, there are some magnificent stories in this Thank collection. You. Joe Lee, I love very much the one that's said in The Famine. Do you know what? I've, uh, Joe Lee, after I wrote that, I thought it was in The Famine. 
and then I kind of realise it, it, it may not be, it might be a, dis, a like a, a really depressing view of the future. I felt the same way and I was going to ask you that question in that you can easily read it as that, which it's, it's obviously supposed to be read as a famine story, but unless we take things very carefully with, with our climate emergency, yeah. and let's face it, we're not doing a very good job of that at the moment, yeah. this could be a story of Ireland 50 years from now. Oh, absolutely. I mean... One thing, like climate, there's climate anxiety is present throughout the entirety of this book, because that's what was bothering me. Of course, like there's many factors called the caused the Irish famine, right? If you put, we'll say, the deliberate starvation by the British to one side, it's also a climate crisis that caused it because the Irish potato. First off, the Irish potatoes at the time of the famine, lumper potatoes. They were all clones of the one potato, so you had a monoculture. So that's why the blight affected every potato. There was no genetic diversity in the potatoes at all. And that's actually something we're facing right now. All the staple food products in the world are monoculture. So they're very susceptible to disease. There's no uh, biodiversity or genetic diversity. So it, it was kind of like that, Thinking, looking back and going, wow, the famine is like... That's that's a climate crisis right there. That's something that happened. That was man-made and nature bit us up the hole and we really suffered. And why why should we be so arrogant as to think that that can't happen again? And it's something people tend not to think about when they obsess with, let's say, rising seas or disappearing ice. I read David Wallace Wells as the uninhabitable earth yes. this year and he deals with, the, with that amongst other things. There's as well. many, many more things. It's yeah. not just, I mean, some people think, Asher, it'll be like Lanzarote, won't we love that? And you'll just get a canoe. It's like, no, let's you're going to be eating the arse of a donkey on the side of a road. One of the things I like about uh, many of the stories in this book is that it requires a bit of effort to get into these stories. Now, mm-hmm. you, you reward that effort, but it does take a bit of effort for, for a reader to get into these stories. Is that deliberate? I tell you, a, a common device that I often use in every story is that I love the concept of the unreliable narrator, which, again, I'd, say, I'd take that from Randy Newman. Randy Newman and, and Jonathan Swift as well whereby you're reading the book and I, I never want you to fully trust the narrator. Like, some people will say to me, is there elements of science fiction or fantasy in what I write? And it's like, there's not. No magic occurs in my universe whatsoever. So there's one story in there, um, Hellfire Scum it's called, and it's about a fella who discovers that if he wears a particularly abrasive type of tweed, it can rip the fabric of time. And that he can now manipulate time using this uh, tweed jacket. But I don't believe in that. Like it's set in like uh, down in Kinsale in a really depressing flat above a centra. And it's two ex-bikers talking about this potentially magical jacket. I don't believe any magic happens in that universe. I think it's, it's, it's the unravelling. Do you know what I mean? And that's a word that sticks out for me with that story because, again, it's the whole thing's about fabric and tweed. But yet this character who's gotten to about 40 years of age and things haven't turned out how he wanted it, he's gone back to his old friend and his life is unravelling. But rather than face it, he thinks he has a magical jacket that can change and edit time. You know, so it, and, and you can only encounter that by going, I don't know if I trust this narrator or not. I don't know if I trust their worldview. And you can see that as well in, in the rubber bandit stuff. That's that's a thread that's been going for my whole career. Like, I hate asking uh, about the bag, but I have to, because even in the course of a radio interview sitting here in front of me, you are wearing the bag. It's like 10 years on uh, Ruffy mm-hmm. Ballpark at this stage. What do you think it still does for you at this point in terms of preserving your anonymity? Or is that just it? 
it doesn't really preserve my anonymity. Like I see, I'm, that's the thing. I'm not really anonymous, but what it does is is uh, it gives me a peaceful everyday life, and that's all I want, really. You know, um, celebrity culture has gotten to the point where you can't have any peace. I mean, I'm about as 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 well known as Marty Whelan at this point, you know. And I, I like if I went to Centra or if I went into Aldi, I have to live the normal life of a person living in Limerick. I just would like to live that life without people asking for selfies every two seconds or and I'm very I'm a very shy person I used to have severe social anxiety I want to do the things I love which is making music making books making TV I want to do these creative artistic pursuits but without this celebrity thing that I have no interest in whatsoever Do you think and maybe I'm completely wrong here but I'm going to say it anyway that as a writer of short stories like these some of which are very 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 pushing the envelope that having that anonymity allows you to maybe push that envelope further than you would if everybody knew who you were and what you looked like it, and if they could come up to you in the centre and talk to you about these stories. It's it's a, it's a double-edged sword, right? I'll tell you what it is. On the one hand, the bag makes me so ridiculous that serious liter- the serious literary world simply won't accept me. They just simply go, I don't know what this fella's doing. So in that respect, it's bad because I don't... I, I feel if my name was like uh, Brendan Scanlon and I was releasing those stories, I would get a hell of a lot more literary respect. I'd be seen as, oh, it's this fella down in Limerick who's doing this interesting stuff. But because I'm blind by and I've got a bag on and it was the same problem I had with the music, I'm just not getting respect from the literary crowd. I get it from people who are younger who are reading them. Um, but at the other side, that... The fact that I'm not taken seriously does allow me to be absolutely ridiculous without getting too much of a push. Blind Boy, thanks for joining us on the book. Thanks a million. Cheers. You can listen to a longer version of that interview on our podcast. Blind Boy Boat Club's Boulevard Wren and Other Stories is published by Gill. In the last few weeks online, I've been asking you, my fellow book lovers, for your number one book recommendation, what we're going to be calling your Read It Forward here on the show. The book you think deserves more readers. Have a listen. I'm Jim Sheridan, and I'd recommend that everybody reads The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, a book that tells of avarice, greed, high times, fun, south of France, and brilliantly written. Hi, I'm Cluda and I'm in London. I'm recommending The Heart's Invisible Furies by John Boyne. One of the funniest and saddest books you'll read in a long time. Tells the story of Cyril Avery. We first meet him when his illegitimate mother is being thrown out of the church in Cork. You will laugh and you will cry and you will love it. I'm David Brophy, conductor of the RTE Concert Orchestra, and I think people should read a fantastic book by Nassim Nicholas Taleb called The Black Swan. In the book, he exposes basically how little we know about the world we live in and how we cannot predict the future. We don't know what's going to happen in 10 years' time, never mind 10 seconds' time. Uh, and we all think, of course, that all swans are white, but they're not. Every now and again, you see a black swan. So we can't predict the future, and our world is ruled by probability and randomness that we don't truly understand. It's a fantastic read. Well, I'm Matteo, uh, and my favourite uh, book is Alchemist. You should read it. Why? Because I said so.
keep sending us your read it forwards just record them on your phone and mail them to the book show at rte.ie the book show is available on podcast you'll find us wherever you normally subscribe to yours it'll have longer versions of our interviews features and book news and with that book news roundup Aoife Barry how are you? I'm not too bad how are you doing? what's happening this week? well this is some interesting news it's December and that means it's the bad sex award so uh, that, that is always uh, one of the interesting highlights of the book calendar at the end of the year they are terrible I've read both yeah it's pretty bad so you have uh, this year we had a kind of a Booker Prize situation so the Booker Prize made a lot of headlines this year because they had two winners Bernadine Everisto and Margaret Atwood the judges couldn't come to a decision on it they couldn't come to a decision on the Bad Sex Award as well either they had who to would have two thought men. that would have happened who would have thought they were following on from uh, the Booker Prize so you have Didier Decoin and John Harvey they're two different writers and uh, I won't read out their selections because we are a family show but you can find it online if you go looking up uh, the Bad Sex Award in fiction and what's really interesting about it is not just how bad their writing is but there is an Irish author who was nominated for the award and I think wrongly nominated for it um, Mary Costello's book The River Capture was one of the books um, this year and I think that they got it totally wrong I loved that book and I really felt that the, all those scenes fitted in with the thrust of the novel excuse the pun I, I'm one um, of those people who just finds sex really uncomfortable in everything I'm reading and it doesn't matter what it is exactly so we won't force you to read out any of the extracts um, but if you want to check them out they are all online but I think it's good to see that Mary Costello has survived those awards and she definitely didn't need to be nominated. Speaking of Irish authors, um, if you want to find out you know, what's happening at the end of the year in terms of what books are good, what other authors like to read, The Guardian always does a really good roundup of the best reads of 2019 or whatever year you're talking about. And this year they got, as usual, other authors to talk about them. And there's a load of Irish authors who've been chosen. So it's a really good time, I think, to pay tribute to the Irish authors this year. So we saw people like Edna O'Brien, Sinead Gleeson for Constellations, Wendy Erskine, her short story collection, Sweet Home. Which, which didn't is get enough so attention good. this year at all. It's yeah. so good. I know it's brilliant. She's such a great writer. Um, Oshin Fagan, his book Knobber. So it's really lovely to see Irish authors getting the nod in The Guardian. And speaking of amazing, talented people who are bringing out books, Anne Enright, who is the former laureate for Irish fiction, she has brought out a book called No Authority. And I believe you were at the launch of that. I was, and it was as jammed as I've ever seen a launch for anything. It was lovely. Margaret Kelleher uh, interviewed her. The book itself is beautiful. It would make a really nice Christmas present. It's one of those ones that you could very easily uh, hand off to the, the book lover in your life. Completely. It's such a beautiful a piece of work. Like even the paper is just absolutely gorgeous. And it has essays. It also has short stories. So you've got a real mix of things in there. And writes about gender she writes about what it's like to be a female writer trying to get published she has a really interesting piece about an experiment that an author paid uh, when she called herself George instead of her female name she also writes about Trump and about loss and about family so it's just really lovely it's called No Authority and it should be available now and the Dalai Lama is going to be bringing out a book in the new year which might be of interest to people who are looking out for their kids looking for a children's book in 2020 it's going to be published in March it's only going to be about 13 or 14 euro and it's basically about him growing up and learning about compassion about Buddhism and about how to be a person in the world he's written lots of other books about joy and wisdom so it's not a surprise to see him go into the jam-packed but very lucrative children's book market That's brilliant Aoife thanks a million we'll see you next week See you then Controversial for its tandem Booker Prize win with Margaret Atwood's The Testaments, Girl, Woman, Other is an expansive novel from Bernadine Evaristo. It tells the story of 12 disparate characters whose stories overlap. Here's an exclusive reading from Bernadine Evaristo from the chapter about playwright Emma and her challenging relationship with her teenage daughter Yaz. Emma wanted her daughter to be free, feminist and powerful. Later, she took her on personal development courses for children to give her the confidence and articulacy to flourish in any setting. 
big mistake. Mum, Yaz said at 14, when she was pitching to go to Reading Music Festival with her friends, it would be to the detriment of my juvenile development if you curtailed my activities at this critical stage in my journey towards becoming the independent-minded and fully expressed adult you expect me to be. I mean, do you really want me rebelling against your old-fashioned rules by running away from the safety of my home to live on the streets and having to resort to prostitution to survive and thereafter drug addiction, crime, anorexia and abusive relationships with exploitative bastards twice my age before my early demise in a crack house. Amma fretted the whole weekend her little girl was away. Adult men have been ogling her daughter since before puberty. There are a lot more paedophiles out there than people realise. A year later, Yaz was calling her a feminazi when she was on her way out to a party and Amma dared suggest she lower her skirt and heels and raise the scoop neck of her top so that at least 30% of her body mass was covered as opposed to the 20% currently given a decency rating. Not to mention the boyfriend glimpsed when he dropped her off in his car. As soon as Yaz was in the door, Amma was waiting in the hallway to ask her the sort of harmless question any parent would ask. Who is he and what does he do? Hoping Yaz would say he was in the sixth form, a relatively harmless schoolboy then. Yaz replied with deadpan insolence. Mum, he's a 30-year-old psychopath who abducts vulnerable women and locks them in a cellar for weeks on end while he has his wicked way with them before chopping them into pieces and sticking them in the freezer for his winter stews. Before waltzing upstairs to her room, leaving a whiff of wacky backy. Bernadine Evaristo there, reading from Girl, Woman, Other. In our first book club, we're featuring John Boyne's 2017 novel, The Heart's Invisible Furies. We'll hear from Huey's Bar Book Club, Ian Killybegs and Donegal. But first, John Boyne, you are very welcome to the book show's first ever book club. Thank you very much. Nice to be on first. No pressure. Um, maybe just very briefly tell us uh, a little bit about The Heart's Invisible Furies and about Cyril Avery. It's a novel that starts in 1945 in Ireland, uh, just after the end of the Second World War. And it works its way through 70 years of Irish history up to and just after the Equal Rights Marriage Referendum of 2015. And it's narrated by a young gay man, um, Cyril Avery. And we follow him in seven year leaps from 45 to uh, 2015. So he goes from zero to the age of 70. And it's his story about how he comes to terms with his own identity in Ireland, his own sexuality. But it's uh, broader than that. It's really about Ireland itself, about how Ireland changed during all those decades, how it went from being like when I was in university, for example, when homosexuality was still illegal to being the first country in the world to vote by public plebiscite for equal rights marriage. Um, And I started writing it in those months leading up to that referendum because I was I had just finished writing a history of loneliness which was about the the church in Ireland and I wanted to write about Ireland again and I wanted to use writing in a way for me to uh, figure out how the country changed so much what it was that happened Um, I thought it was going to be a very serious book all the way through I thought it was going to be a narrator who would be looking back at his life with regret but because it's such a long book uh, I realised quite early on, actually, that I needed to make it quite funny. And, you know, and Cyril goes through so many things during the book. You know, he, he has a lot of setbacks in life, but he is sort of an eternal optimist. He never really allows himself to get 
um, too distraught when things happen, that he, he just picks himself up and keeps going and keeps going. Um, he suffers grief. He suffers uh, isolation at times. He has to hide his sexuality when he's much younger. Um, and um, But he is a kind of basically a good-hearted character. Uh, I've witnessed a lot of discussions online, not least through my own book club, and the amount of love for Cyril as a character and people speaking about being bereft at the end of the book because Cyril will no longer be part of their lives. Was that something you were expecting? It, it wasn't really, but it is something that you hope when you write a book, you know, especially in a first person narrative. You do want the reader to really relate to that character, to feel that they're absolutely real and that the, the hours they've spent reading the book, they've been lost inside it. That's what I want as a reader, not just as a writer. So um, I think Cyril is probably my most popular character in all of my books and, and his mother Maud, Maud Avery, his adoptive mother. Um, she, Even though she's only in one chapter, she tends to get a lot of uh, affection from readers. I'm going to leave the rest of this then to Huey's Bar Book Club in Donegal. So first of all, we're going to hear a little bit of the book club's discussion about reading The Hearts Invisible Furies. I enjoyed the book. Uh, John Boyne covers that whole period in Irish history of the sexual oppression that went on for those 70 years. I particularly enjoyed the first section of the book. He uses a black humour and a quirkiness that I found particularly amusing, even though the material was quite heavy. I greatly enjoyed the book. I, um, I don't say that about too many books mind you in the book club here but uh, I did enjoy that I loved his style of writing he has a tremendous way with words Uh, I'm of an age to have lived through all the bad times in Ireland and uh, through all the good times that came and from that aspect Joe spoke about it I could resonate with all that it's extremely positive reaction so far. That's nice, yes. Uh, each of the uh, members of the book club gets to ask a question uh, of you. Uh, so first of all, three questions from the club. Mary has this one. I felt reading the book that it was autobiographical in the main and uh, I was wondering if it was. So that's a good question. Um, obviously, you and Cyril are entirely different in terms of ages and when you grew up and where you did. But are there autobiographical elements of the story? There are there are elements, certainly. Um, you know, Cyril is gay and I'm gay. So, you know, there's an element of that, that uh, uh, some of the things he goes through when he's a, a younger man in terms of coming to terms with his sexuality and how he approaches that and how he explores that um, come from my own life. But my childhood was very happy, uh, unlike Cyril's. Um, I mean, Cyril's isn't a miserable childhood. He's just, it's just a, an awkward childhood in many ways. But mine was a very kind of happy one, to be honest. So I, I didn't so much uh, take that. But I, I, did, um, I did draw in a lot of my experiences of growing up in terms of the, uh, just the, those sexual aspects and um, the kind of sense of guilt maybe that you feel when something is illegal in a country and you feel that there's something wrong with you or that you know, you're going to end up in jail. And certainly later on in the book, again, even though he's older, during the, the 1980s chapters when uh, I explore the AIDS crisis, I do remember as a teenager, kind of when AIDS was uh, a big subject in the media and on the news and so on, and feeling as a teenager, you know, maybe 14, 15 years old, thinking it, it almost felt like that was the inevitable end. That was the way it was portrayed at the time for, for any gay person. And for, sort of feeling like a panic about that because it was so misunderstood. OK, thanks, Mary, for the first question. Second one comes from Joe. Would you agree that the black humour that you use in the first part of the book isn't used in the second part? 
Uh, if you would agree with that, uh, could I ask you why you didn't continue with the same humour throughout the whole book? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think the humour is, is toned down, certainly, as it goes on. During the earlier part of the book, when he's more inept, shall we say, and getting himself into scrape after scrape, um, I, I use the humour more there. As he gets older, he settles down in life, really. He's more comfortable with himself. OK, and the last one is from Kathleen. The way we look at things today has changed very rapidly in the last few years. And I wonder, is it totally fair to blame state, church, society? Back then, when that was the times they were living in, that was how things were looked at in general. And to be so hard on them and blame everything on them when actually society as a whole was wrong. But that's changed now, thank goodness, well, hopefully... And I'm just wondering if that's fair. That's a lot to unpack there. What do you think? It's a reasonable question. I think, um, you know, the the, the church uh, uh, was a big part of society then, you know, so it was a big element of it. I'm not sure that I absolutely blame everything on them. I, uh, you know, in, in that previous novel that I mentioned, The History of Loneliness, which is about the church, I tried to take the part of... Uh, understanding why those things had happened. So that fed into the Hearts Invisible Furies um, in a large way. But uh, while I I don't think it's completely blaming um, the church uh, throughout it, I do think that um, the characters are living a life that that is is defined by those kind of society institutions and that um, they, they can't be themselves. So somebody has to take responsibility for that. John Boyne with our first book club choice, The Heart's Invisible Furies. And if your book club would like to get involved, we'd love to hear from you. You can email bookshow at rte.ie and tell us what book you'll be reading next. I'm Rick O'Shea and that is it for our first show. You can keep up to date with us during the week on Twitter and Instagram at bookshowrte. And you can keep the conversation going by searching for The Rick O'Shea Book Club on Facebook. Our podcast has extra content and you'll be able to find it wherever you get yours. The Book Show is produced for RTE Radio 1 by Ojo Productions. (laughs) 